Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Bayamara. This is a weekly news show where I discuss contemporary events in the art and history fields. I'm your host and personal curator, Amara Andrew. And I'm Jeff. And today in the studio, if you are not watching this, I have my best friend on the podcast again. It's Jeff. Sorry, I never want to get too far away from the microphone because I did in the last episode and that was bad. Um, But anyway, the format that we typically uh, follow for this show, which we are getting back to today, so yay, uh, is one traditionally used by Western brides, something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. This week, we're actually, like I said, keeping up with the theme of the show, which is cool. We're going to be talking about using Beethoven's hair to solve his death. Are AI-generated art and photography similar? Or is, rather. (laughs) I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, The first ever NFT is involved in a sticky lawsuit. And did the Eiffel Tower actually inspire the Starry Night? We have all that and more coming up on this episode of Bayamara. Let's get to it. So, hello and welcome to the show. Like I said, or like I said, like you could hear, Jeff is in the studio with me. Yo. (laughs) (laughs) You let me just stop and you dead in your track. <laughs> he never says yo. <laughs> Actually. So, anyway. Uh, so yes, yeah, so Jeff is in studio with me, which is very lovely. So um, I don't know. It's nice to like, I like talking to you, you who are listening or watching this, but it's also nice to have somebody to kind of go back and forth with a little bit because then also we have very different viewpoints on some things, mm-hmm. not everything, but some things, especially what we're talking about in today's show. So I thought... Having Jeff here would be very nice, um, and he knows a lot more about AI-generated art and NFTs than I do, so that's also another part, because I actually need your help with what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, because I know, like, one. development and building things. I built her NFT project, which, by the way, you did. Amara Andrew, the host of By Amara, has two NFT projects. One is The Dowers, which is the cover art of this show. Is one of the dowers. That is That's true. the one that I own. I purchased from her. And then the spoopies. Yes. So a couple of things. Maybe she'll link it down below. But continue. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably forget. So go find them on my website. <laughs> uh, so anyway, how are you doing today? I am good. How are you doing today? I feel like we're learning English. <laughs> I, I am good. You too? <laughs> oh, yeah. We had our coffee earlier, like hours ago. And, yes. chatted, and now so I'm actually funny. very hungry. It's way later in the day. So uh-huh. I'm just, I'm very... Uh, I'm using my hand to show that I'm lowering energy. There you go. Uh, I need to remember that this is also an audio podcast. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so you're doing okay today? I'm good. What have you been working on lately since we saw each other last week? (laughs) 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 Yeah, thanks for welcoming back into your home. You're welcome, Porky Pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if I been working on? I don't even. I'm seriously tongue-tied right now. I haven't been speaking. I've been clicky clicky on the computer. That's fine. Well, you've been working on uh, my merch actually today, so thank oh, you. Yeah. yeah, for Maven, MavenBiomara.com. Yeah, which is a sponsor of today's episode, which we'll talk about in a second. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm catching up on all the backlog of stuff that. Um, Wait, that yep. I have. He, in addition to doing my stuff, he has many other things to do. Oh yeah, I have like a lot of business partners and clients and things yes. through spire my company yeah. i feel like i'm just plugging everything right now so maybe we should get moving into the show <laughs> no go for it you do you, do you man what, what have you been up to this week though? why doesn't spire sponsor those uh just recording with clients we're actually recording with another one of my clients tomorrow it's just been very crazy busy i actually it's funny because that's actually a note that i have on here um i've just been because i'm still kind of new with how many clients I have and trying to figure out my workflow and everything. I don't know when my busy season is and I'm finding that it's just kind of all the time. Uh, there is kind of no on off time just because like with Maven, oh my God, this, this is just an ad, I guess. But with Maven, we record with clients like every two months and then we just record two months worth of content at one time. So uh, it can vary like depending on how many clients I have and blah, blah, blah. It's the whole thing, just whatever. I'll tell you about it in a minute. Um, but yeah, so I don't know when my busy time is because it's just very consistent because people still need social media content every month or every other month when we shoot. So it's just very consistent. So Yeah, the beauty of how it's set up, though, is doing that once every two months. Yes. So if it was constantly shooting every month with all your clients, like that, that would be That would be, be not, not only for us, but just mostly for the client also mm-hmm. to have to like block off this not like a whole day. It only takes a couple hours, but like mentally, that takes a ton of time versus just doing it all in one go. So mm-hmm. anyway, 
Um, yeah, so that's what we've been busy with. So, uh, we're also planning some more travel for the next few months. We just booked a trip to, uh, my homeland, Arizona. So it's going to be my best friend from high school's bachelorette party. I am very excited to see her and a couple other people I went to high school with who I haven't seen in 12 years now. Um, so that'll be fun. And I get to show him all of my old places because he shows me all the places where he's grown up here. And I don't know. It's just really exciting. I cannot uh-huh. wait to show. Like, obviously, we're only going to be. Well, I'm going to the bachelorette party. You are not going. But <laughs> uh, we're only going to be in like where I actually lived, lived for 24 or 48 hours. So uh, get yeah, ready. But, but I'll get to get a vibe for where you come from. Yeah. Where'd you come from? Where'd you go? I don't get big fat hoe. <laughs> no, <laughs> not you. <laughs> hey, this one's explicit. Everybody knows that. Uh, that was pretty mild for me. Anyway, uh, oh, and when I was writing out this template, I don't know. I just had this weird moment of gratitude to, like, well, you, but mostly to you who are listening and watching. Just like I don't know. Just thank you so much. Like I don't think about it, but there are like people who listen to this and who watch this it doesn't feel like it when you're doing it no it feels like we're talking to a camera with our faces on a little monitor next to it and and i don't think about this after putting it out necessarily Mm -hmm. it's just like okay next episode let's get ready and i don't know i just like i just wanted to say thank you like i if you're, you probably already have zoomed past this part, but whatever. Uh, but just thank you so much. Like I, I genuinely, genuinely appreciate it. And I know I say thank you at the end of almost every episode, but I truly appreciate it. And like those of you who have subscribed and liked and commented and just like been awesome. Like, thank you. You are awesome. <laughs> I'm not good at this. So but- also she is almost to a thousand subscribers on YouTube, which is yes. really exciting. It's just like a fun little milestone. It doesn't, it it's literally doesn't mean anything, but it's but fun. Yeah. So if you are watching and you haven't subscribed, click the little subscribe button. Yeah, it, it's free. So thank you very much. I just, I genuinely just had this, like, it was so weird. It was just this overwhelming feeling of like love and gratitude. So just genuinely thank you so much. So I just wanted to say that at the top of the show. Uh, So now let's get to some ads. We already kind of plugged (laughs) Maven. I was trying to write this out. And it's funny when you're trying to describe what you do. It's very difficult. It's so simple because essentially what Maven is, it's, a video, like social media, video-based content subscription service. (laughs) Elevator pitch. (laughs) The person in the elevator is like, ding, oh, that's my floor. Should I just say what you do? Look. (laughs) (laughs) She helps people. Tell me what I do. You shoot video for people yes. and you edit and produce. Like and literally it. from conception to post-production, I handle everything. But yeah, the so. premise is just that a maven <laughs> is more than an influencer. It's yes. an expert with influence. So Maven by Amara, she helps people become experts online. He's my, he keeps putting. This chair, <laughs> I need to tighten the chair. <laughs> I don't think this will pick it up, but there you There, go. that was a dramatic reenactment. <laughs> But yeah, she helps people become mavens. That's the whole premise. He's good at selling An me. expert with influence. I mean, I'm not good at selling, though. I'm good at making everything selling work. Selling me. So, Maven by Amara is sponsoring this episode. I need to work on this ad copy. Uh, but essentially, just if you don't have time, but you want to have social media content out there, I'm here to help. So, and especially in real estate. Like, that seems to be, yeah. it's not your niche deliberately, no. but so many realtors have come to her. And it's because it's so effective. <laughs> that's what's interesting. So, yeah, that's yeah. uh, mavenbyamara.com. That's M A V E N B Y A M A R A dot C O M. Mavenbyamara.com, linked in the description below. So, that was the worst ad read read i've ever i can't even say i like you even say an ad copy there is no copy no. clearly I, I <laughs> it's just waiting. now on to the show
I just really like Vendla that for uh, playing in studio. They're just off off camera <laughs> over here. Um, it's really nice. You can just sort of give them the little cue by hitting the button, and so they start playing. It actually zaps them. It's an electrification button. So oh, I, I didn't know that. It can go up to 100 million volts. Perfect. Anyway, so our first story pairs history and science together by studying the locks of a famous dead composer and kind of looking at how he died because it's still kind of like unknown. So Beethoven was known for his substantial hair that was just kind of like everywhere. Essentially, he was like Edward Scissor, the Edward Scissor Hans before Edward Scissor Hands. But just his hair is just like, have you seen him before? Beethoven the dog? I saw the movie when I was growing <laughs> up. Is I that what we're talking about? about? <laughs> yeah, Beethoven the dog composer. Beethoven the composer. Uh-huh. Um, so he was known for his hair. And it's actually funny because his hair might be giving us clues about his myriad health problems. So friends of his kept his locks of his hair after death as like a little keepsake which was super common practice you just like tie it together so you didn't have all these (laughs) strands just going everywhere i mean i'm sure they did the same with beethoven the dog's hair so probably (laughs) (laughs) oh rest in peace beethoven the dog and beethoven the person he has to be gone by now well yeah so yeah don't make that oh god don't make a sad (laughs) man back to the composer so uh Friends of his kept locks of his hair uh, after he passed. So now an international team is going back, going back. They're not going back in time, but they are testing these strands to sequence uh, Beethoven's DNA. The researchers reported in the journal Current Biology that they hope by studying Beethoven's DNA that they can understand the cause of his progressive hearing loss, chronic gastrointestinal complaints and severe liver disease that ultimately caused his death in 1827 by age 56. I also learned while reading this study in the actual journal that both his hearing loss as well as his debilitating abdominal pain started in his 20s. He dealt with them for almost 40 years. That is insane because like, I mean, hearing got progressively worse. Tummy inside pain got progressively worse as well. What was also interesting too is before he died, he actually requested that his health issues be described and made public, which I thought was really cool. So he wanted maybe sometime in the future. I don't really know a lot about Beethoven to be quite honest, but uh, I thought that was really cool because that actually sounds like something you would do where you'd be like, study this. Historians have long studied Beethoven's journals and letters to find some clues about his health issues he experienced, which It sounds like there were even more than what I just laid out. Um, But now we actually have science, like scientific advancements to help us to be able to study his DNA and his hair. This is really interesting. I mean, this is all very interesting, but this, this is very interesting. Ah, (laughs) he tried to bite my thingy. Uh, The researchers in this study, they tested eight different locks that were attributed to Beethoven. Combined with provenance, the DNA testing was able to conclude that of the eight locks, only five were actually able to be proven to be authentic Beethoven hair strands. The other three lacked sufficient DNA for testing or yielded inconclusive results, so they couldn't really tell with the rest of the three. The most famous lock of all of these, called the Hiller lock, which I had actually heard of, was determined to be the hair of a woman, so it is not Beethoven's actual hair. So within the story, there's another story, but that is a story for another story time. So, uh, and the Hiller lock was named after his composer friend, Ferdinand Hiller, who, Fernand Hiller, uh, who clipped a little lock at Beethoven's deathbed. So you're a little liar. Hmm. Anyway, fun fact. And do you know, was it collectors then that had it? Because obviously Beethoven, so, that was a long time ago. It's a variety of different sources. I'm not exactly sure, but I know, yeah, it, private collectors, because the Hiller lock was actually on display at the Beethoven Center in San Jose, mm-hmm. but because it's since been disproven that it's not Beethoven's hair, they took it off of display immediately, which makes sense, like rightfully so. Uh, so yeah, private collectors, I think maybe one or two were actually descendants of the original person mm-hmm. who took the hair lock from Beethoven. Hopefully um, those were the actual ones. I know. Because that'd be weird Could if you they're imagine? great 
great grandfather is like, oh, this is Beethoven, and it's not. Yeah, and it's like that's a doggy. <laughs> it's Beethoven the doggy. Full <laughs> circle. Okay, and no. Uh, so to also supplement these hair s- samples that they had, researchers took saliva samples from five known male Beethoven descendants in Belgium. However, this is going to get sort of sad. <laughs> Not like sad. It's sad if you're one of the people. This, however, slightly backfired because these five living Beethovens were related to each other but not the famous composer. A lot has been cleared up with this one study, which is wild. Like so much was just figured out, which is really cool because then it's like history and science like coming together and just like, I love it. These people are not biologically related to Beethoven. Um, It's not clear which generation the biological link was broken, but they are not biologically related to him. Instead, it's just uh, like through through familial connections but not mm-hmm. genetically directly related yeah yeah more like cousins like his kiss and cousins <laughs> <laughs> but like beethoven's cousin maybe well, no not even so genetically so it'd have to be pre it was what was the term it was an extra extra father patrilineal it was something where the mother had another child with another man but they were taken under the beethoven wing so they were raised as beethovens okay if that makes sense so they're they're all i wasn't so maybe quite, beethoven's wife i'm so not into genetics like i find it fascinating but mm-hmm. i have no idea so it actually would have been someone in his family at some point okay so it could have been before him could have been after him but mm. at some point yeah. there was a little branch off (laughs) so okay so then to wrap up this story the researchers didn't find any genetic cause for beethoven's deafness or stomach pain however they did find a genetic risk for liver disease as well as evidence of a hepatitis b infection that at some point in his life he received unfortunately they also stated that uh when coupled with his quote broadly accepted alcohol consumption Apparently, it is legendary. I had no idea that Mm. Beethoven... I mean, most people drink a shit ton of alcohol in the past because it was just water was disgusting. I just made out with this on accident. Uh, But it's believed that combined with alcohol and then all these liver issues, that that's ultimately what caused his death, which really sucks. And that's why he was suffering so much. So my question to you is, do you think we should clone him? (laughs) (laughs) We have to start with Beethoven the dog. And if that goes smoothly... And if that dog can act like the other one, then like the original Beethoven. If the clone is as good of an actor in Beethoven the Sixth or whatever that movie would be now. I don't know how many Beethoven movies there were. (laughs) Then we know for uh, statistically, we have statistic certainty that the original Beethoven would also be brilliant at music. Yes. That's how it works, right? Yes. Should we clone someone? Cloning people is such a... That's something we could talk about for a long time. I don't even know where to start. Just uh, in a couple minutes. Yeah. (laughs) So do you think then if we have these historics... Because I think we also have like a sample of Abraham Lincoln's hair or something. If we have people from history where we can confirm that this is indeed this person's DNA, do you think we should clone them? And how similar do you think the clone will be to the person? Because, like, I know that some wonky, again, I, I don't know why I'm speaking on this issue. I know nothing. <laughs> but, like, just what do you what do you think? Well, yeah, so there's two questions. Should humans be cloned and then nature or nurture is sort of the, mm-hmm. the twofold. Like, I am very curious about what cloning would be. Yeah. For Especially humans. a historical figure. Well, and I would, I'd be curious. I would say we'd have to start. There, it would have to become legal. Oh my god! To it's going to be like a zoo. You could have all the clones in like cages and stuff, and be like, "Oh, look, it's Beethoven." Yeah, well, and like Orphan Black, that show, yeah, was all about clones. Uh-huh. Spoiler alert for the first episode, but <laughs> <laughs> um, really great show. But it is so fascinating, and just it's it's hard to say. It would be. I feel like it's an innate curiosity, just mm-hmm. cloning a human in general to see then how they would nature versus nurture sort of turn out. Because they're not mm-hmm. going to be the same, right. like especially 
the hepatitis infection and things. Mm-hmm. That's not a guarantee that the well, and oh the no, alcohol they would actually already have it. I really wish this chair wasn't farting like that. But <laughs> just ignore it. But that is weird because you're not cloning infant Beethoven. You're cloning Beethoven who has the hepatitis infection, who has these things. So I also have a dumb question because when you clone someone, do you also get the memories? No. Okay. So because I didn't also, think so. I was just wondering yeah. if it was like imprinted in the brain somehow, like within each groove or something. Yeah. So because it would be genetically the same, but they would have a new life. Okay. So like, I mean, obviously it's starting as an infant. Yeah. So then seeing where it goes. So I would be curious about human cloning, but I don't, I don't see it ever being legalized. Yeah. And I feel like we're just going to find out like, oh, this 60 year old guy was actually cloned in some country. Uh huh. And we'll be like, oh, really? He's like, been living among us. Uh huh. And then we'll just sort of see what that means. Cause I don't know what the implications are for cloning someone. I have all the answers, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but like if I wanted to be cloned, yes. first, that is <laughs> to want to be cloned is a very, very self. Uh, you're, Aggrandizing. You're, yeah, you have such high self-importance first. But out of yes. the curiosity, if I wanted to be cloned, should I be allowed to be cloned? Well, it's, well I'm not going to go into this other topic, but it's. It is sort of like having a child, except we're. Oh, yeah. If. In a world where we wanted a child, nope, <laughs> we would essentially essentially be cloning percentages of each other. Yes. So it's a similar concept, but very different. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Just something to ponder, I uh-huh. guess. But I just thought it would be interesting, like yeah, if you had know. a little clone zoo. I don't know. I about mean, the I'm zoo very part, anti-zoos, but, also, yeah. but <laughs> I don't know about the zoo part. But, yeah, but and by I don't know, no. There we go. All right. On to the next story. (laughs) I'm glad we purchased that house band for $7 million. All right. So our next story. So this past week, there was an art exhibit that was opened at Gagaujan's 976 Madison Avenue location in New York City. But get this. No artists were included in this exhibit. I have a feeling I know where this is going. He's going to love this. <laughs> Why are we both singing? <laughs> so instead, the exhibition was produced by Bennett Miller, who's a film director, and consisted of works created using Dolly, which is the image generation platform from OpenAI. So Jeff is very much going to enjoy this. The exhibition consists of, it's still open, so I was going to say consisted, but it consists of a slew of prints that were created by Miller using Dolly, like I said. It's a lot of different subjects. So this I'm actually very intrigued by this. It's a very interesting thought. I thought you were going to say something. Yeah, no. So it includes landscapes as well as portraits of people. And like specifically children, there's one haunting photo. I'm going to actually put it up right here just so you can see it. It looks just like this image by... You might not have any idea who this is, but Julia Margaret Cameron, she was a very early, like 1850s, I believe, or something, or 1860s. She's a very early photographer, and there's this one image of Julia Jackson, who I think is her niece or her cousin or something like that. They look very similar, but whole other other thing we'll talk about in a second. So people have even stated who have been in this gallery to see these images, that they appear to be photographs that were created by a human, but then when you look at them, obviously, uh, you can see oh, this is like a little softer. It kind of has like a hazy quality or like something doesn't look quite right. Uh, So thankfully we can still tell that, but we were just talking about this the other night. We are getting closer and closer to possibly not. (laughs) I mean, you can barely tell now. Yes. Like you might be like, oh, his skin looks a little too shiny just for the scene, but it is so But if you look quick, you Mm -hmm. really can't tell unless it's like really insane. Uh, so the exhibition text also was even partially created using chat GPT, which is also part of open AI. So I like that it's this entire AI gallery, essentially. It's just really fascinating. It's interesting. I'm, I don't know, well, whatever. Uh, so none of these artworks are real in a sense, but they are, they're not real in the traditional way that we've produced things, but they are real in a new sense 
they are real a nuisance a nuisance (laughs) (laughs) they are real and that they were actually like created by someone just not typically how we thought about these things and when I was reading this I was thinking of Walter Benjamin's art in the age of mechanical reproduction it's a theoretical text I guess you could call it it is (laughs) his whole argument was that like just to boil it down very very boiled down like anything produced with a camera or a a film camera like either photography or film like moving pictures uh is not art and it cannot be art because it wasn't made by the human hand so it has to be something in like kind of the traditional canon of art like fine art where it's painting sculpture all that kind of crap uh stuff i love it but it's just it's very different (laughs) crap stuff there you go which is also very significant because miller stated the uh bennett miller the guy who like created all this he stated that he actually drew upon the dawn of photography for his images so that's why some of these images actually look very similar to images that were created at the start quote-unquote of photography because that's what he was typing in as his freaking prompts (laughs) So the exhibit appears to have started because Miller is also currently in the process of creating a documentary about AI. So I like how very meta this is, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but I like including like making your own gallery exhibition to then I would assume create like or create include in your documentary as well. And having the text be AI, it's just very interesting. I also wonder if he's even going to try to teach AI to edit all the footage together or something. That would actually be very fascinating. So how he got to the exhibit, though, and I I have a question for you, which is why you're here, Jeff, or the viewer. Miller interviewed numerous different figures involved with AI for this documentary, including Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, which led Miller to getting acquainted with Dolly. I read in a separate, separate article that he actually got insider access to using Dolly before anybody else did, which I mm. thought was really cool. So he kind of got a jump start on this. I read that he also had like five years to work on this, which I don't know if that's actually accurate or not, but he had a couple years to work on this, which is pretty cool. So according to the description of the exhibit on Gagaujin's website, Miller, quote, began using the software to reflect on the nature and progression of shifts in the ways we understand representational artwork. The striking results engage the history and format of photography to pose questions around the contingent and enigmatic nature of perception, reality, and truth, end quote at the time when photography started people did not trust it people did misuse it uh oh my god what's his name i forget his name right now but there's a guy who literally alex gardner i think i think gardner was his last name but at the start of photography in the 1860s here in america he actually took bodies and like that happened okay i'm not doing a very good job explaining this is this the war yes photographer okay he made his own scenes by taking dead bodies off of the battlefield of the civil war and posing them how he wanted to. And he did sell it as being just photographic evidence of the civil war. But that's the thing too. It kind of wasn't sold as photographic evidence. So it's all like intent behind something, which context is key for everything. So is it okay if I jump in? So what do you think about this exhibit? Well, I first wanted to say, you said it's an exhibit without an artist. So it's an exhibit without artists. So do you classify him as an artist then? Like a sandwich artist. (laughs) (laughs) So the Walter Benjamin guy Mm -hmm. said a photographer is not an artist. Yes. Do you agree with that? No. Okay. So. And that's what I mean. That's why this is confusing for my brain because I've found myself being that critic this gets very complicated. I have very complicated feelings inside, uh, but I do not agree with that because I think photography and film... You don't agree with... With Walter Benjamin. Yeah. Like, I do think that photography and film are art forms because mm-hmm. there's so much that goes into it. Like, sometimes, or even oftentimes, more than just a painting because it's like, okay, I put my colors and I plan it out and whatever. And I'm not diminishing painting. It's just, mm-hmm. there's so much to think about for photography and... Uh, there's a lot to think about with any art medium. I'm just digging a hole and jumping well, no. right so into I it. So I have a follow-up question then. So I think just because I've done all of these different art mediums, film and photography feel infinitely more complicated because you have various different technologies to work with and to make them all work 
Like we have 80 different fucking things going on right now, but it's working Yeah, the depth for this podcast. <laughs> I hope it's all perspective because the depth of a photo when you're setting up lights and you're, you're worrying about the, the sky in that moment, the wind, the, all these different things, because that's part of your art. I think you can... because it's that moment, mm -hmm. whereas painting, <clears throat> you can try to repaint something. I mean, I know you have a finite amount of times, but you can try to redo it. Yeah, and that doesn't diminish. Not at all, because painting art. is still very difficult. Well, yeah, <laughs> but they are different things. So I wanted to say, so you, are, you do say that photography and filmmaking, videography, whatever, is an art form. Yes. Would you say someone who creates from those photos, say, say a photographer who takes photos into Photoshop mm -hmm. and creates fantastical scenes, would that be art? Yes. Would it still be art if they didn't take the photos? Yes, and that's why my opinion on AI-generated art has shifted slightly. I still do have issues with the attribution to artists oh, and everything, but I do, like, I've never not thought of it as art. It's mm -hmm. just very different. Like, I need to get used to it, I think, also. We all do. That's what's so weird. Because it's so, like, oh, this is, like, what? Um, so I do still struggle with the attribution, and I know mm -hmm. we've had a lot of discussions about it. When I just wanted to jump to then the AI art, if you see the camera as a tool to create art, if you see Photoshop or any sort of software as a tool to further create art, yes. I, I would posit that AI-generated images are the next tool that we'll have to become accustomed to. And I would say this has an artist. It's a different, it's a different way that you get to the art but I would say that I already forgot his name. But Bennett the, Miller. Yeah, so I would say that Bennett Miller is the artist behind this. He's yes. just using the artificial intelligence, which tool. I would agree. Okay. So yeah, I used the not an artist uh, as a pithy little headline. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very interesting because now the role of artist will shift, and you're almost more of a a curator in a way. Like it's interesting so you're essentially painting with your words mm -hmm. because you're trying to attach text to an image so if anything i'm just now realizing this is making being an art historian or at least just somebody who looks at stuff and spectates that stuff <laughs> i'm great with words even more important because you have to know how to find what to look for it's the same with a google search and we've talked about this where People can't find things on Google or on the internet or anywhere because they're not asking the right question and they don't know that. And that's totally fine. It's just ignorance on their part and not negative. It's just you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know how to look for something because you don't have the answer because you don't know what to look for because you don't have the answer. And blah, Well, and there's blah. a lot of people doing AI prompts. So this is a yeah. way to get this type of result, not even just art, but just chat answers like how do you frame it so you don't get what everyone else sees you don't get the these are three the three best <laughs> things about xyz and, which is basically every answer it feels like so like you yes. really need to get past that so that is a skill it's a learned th there will be learned behaviors that mm -hmm. become commonplace but right now it's actually a small i would say there's a small group of people who know how to use the tool well mm -hmm. and i would then say that's the same as a camera same as Photoshop or any sort of like software mm -hmm. is I think anyone just, can yeah. use it, but can you use it well? Yeah, I think it's just a new, like there will be classes in art school for sure. This will be a whole major mm -hmm. about how to use AI to be creative and how to use it to write your museum labels and how to really describe uh, your work and everything. I don't know. This might actually make people more creative. It'll just be a different type of creativity. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be, I'm going to sit down and draw every single thing, but maybe it's, uh, I need to describe it better. And like for people who can't draw, who want to have drawings out there, who can't paint, but want to have paintings out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, this could actually be really great. And even people who are differently abled too, who like physically cannot do certain things, like they could have artwork out in a gallery or something mm -hmm. like that's actually really cool i never thought about that well and i could see the value of analog art also 
sticking around in a way that's oh, different yeah. than digital because it'll be what's your preference and then it's like okay well i like i like knowing that this is handmade because it's just like uh like potter pottery or textiles or tapestries because those are like the main things i can think of right now and our in-house band yes them as well <laughs> Hello. <laughs> but having them be handmade and knowing that they're handmade it has a totally different vibe than being like oh i bought this at ikea or wherever not a sponsor but just uh yeah, it's, it's more artisanal, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I mean, I think it's all just a tool, and the tools constantly change. Call me? <laughs> and it's hard because we want things to remain the same, just innately. Like, this is what I know. This is, this is how it's supposed to be. But as the person who is anti-photography, like, really represents, it's Many like... Many people. Yeah, and, like, what... There is no supposed to. Like, everything, everything's made up and nothing matters. It's something that, like, I say all the time. Uh-huh. Um, That's true. Because, it, like, everything. We've, we've created and, and invented everything that we think is how things are supposed to be. Some groups, individuals, whatever, decided, made decisions along the way. And then we say, this is art. That's not art. And then one day we're like, this is art and that's art. And I think that's really just what's going to happen. Oh, and I love the subjectivity of what is art because it makes people really fucking mad mm-hmm. when you ask like... We can't wait for the comments. Oh my God. <laughs> Some of you are real dicks. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, I just thought this was very interesting. I feel like we're actually going to talk about this way more off this podcast. Uh-huh. But uh, for now... I mean, in other weeks too, maybe. Yeah, Stay maybe. tuned. Subscribe. <laughs> hit the bell. Reminders. He's my little cheerleader. Thank you. <laughs> okay, on to the next story. Okay, this one's going to be rough. <laughs> if you're listening to this, Jeff is uh, orchestrating what? the... Uh, oh, sorry, I was too busy conducting. I forgot. Or yeah, I've, I was in orchestra. You were in band. Uh-huh. Band geek. <laughs> Orchestra dork? I don't know. <laughs> Dorchestra. Dorchestra. That's good. Violin is way cooler than saxophone. Said Kenny G. <laughs> I, I, I don't need to. Uh, I have no I know, I'm just anything towards play. He I did that. Care. Yeah, I didn't care at all. I was in fourth grade and my friends were like, you're not going to be in band? I'm like, no. They're like, you should. I'm like, okay. And then they all quit in like a year and I stuck it out until like high school. <laughs> What a trooper. Uh-huh. Okay. So our next story, stick with me. This is very complicated. And this is most of the reason why I have Jeff here today. Oh, I thought it was the last one. Okay. No, it's mostly this one. I, I wanted to hear your thoughts for the AI one, but then it was mostly this one. And I was thinking of just having you come in for the story, mm-hmm. but I, you're here this whole time. So hello. Okay. So I'm going to do my best to explain this as clearly as possible for things that I mess up on. We have Jeff here to help. Another, I keep saying a major NFT case, but yet another major NFT case was dismissed by a judge this week. And this is really, really important because it involves the first ever created NFT. A Canadian company called Free Holdings filed a lawsuit against a man named Kevin McCoy. In the lawsuit, Free Holdings claims that they were the rightful owners of this historic NFT called Quantum, even though Kevin McCoy had sold the NFT in question for $1.5 million at Sotheby's in 2021. What is going on? Let me give you some background. (laughs) So in 2014, this NFT called Quantum was invented by Kevin McCoy and Anil Dash at a conference. And like I stated, this is the first ever NFT created. Did you know this? So I know I didn't, the first name I didn't remember, but as soon as you said Anil Dash, then I was like, okay, yeah, I do know about when this happened okay so this is a video clip made by mccoy's wife jennifer and if you're watching this i'll have this on the screen but right now i'm just showing it to jeff on the computer screen just so you can see this is what it is mm-hmm. it's just uh one two three four five six seven eight an octagon a variety of different octagons pulsing in and out various different colors and it's switching back and forth very quickly it's kind of what like an acid trip would look like i would imagine i haven't done acid yet maybe uh so (laughs) it's just it's very it's like when you like close your eyes and if you see like the firework kind of things in your eyes and you have like all the colors and stuff it kind of looks like that anyway i like it i think it's fun so that was that (laughs) 
So McCoy had minted this NFT on a blockchain called Namecoin, which is a blockchain software modeled from Bitcoin's code. Are you familiar with Namecoin? So I'm not familiar. I don't know how long that stuck around, but I do know. I feel like I'm interrogating you. Where were you on this date? <laughs> because like right now, an NFT is an ERC-721 on Ethereum. That's okay. a very specific. So this is why I have him here. <laughs> yeah, it's a very specific thing. It, I mean, I say that on the Ethereum blockchain. It's specifically a 721 or an 1155, but then you have Solana and other chains. So what an NFT is okay, so is a this, question and i feel like that's where we're, we're going yes yeah so uh we will explain everything that jeff just said in a moment because <laughs> i also get quite confused so okay so mccoy in 2014 minted this nft called quantum on main namecoin namecoin registrations though must be renewed regularly. So about every 222 days is what I saw on their website. Most art other articles that I read said between 200 and 250. So Does it still exist, Namecoin? Yes. I don't fully understand it, though. Okay. So they still exist. Um, so if someone doesn't renew their registration, though, uh, it's free for somebody else to claim it and then claim ownership over it which is very odd. I don't quite understand. Yeah, that's confusing because they did it like a domain name, like for websites. Exactly. So I don't know. I wonder how that works. That doesn't... It does. It literally doesn't make any sense to me, but this is just what I've read. Mm -hmm. So Free Holdings, the company that is suing Kevin McCoy, claims that in 2015, the year after McCoy had first minted Quantum, that he actually failed to update his records. And so Free Holdings was able to claim the quantum blockchain record on Namecoin. So this is where it gets even trickier. <laughs> to prepare for the sale of quantum, because like I said, Kevin McCoy sold quantum at Sotheby's in 2021. How the fuck did he do that? With Sotheby's, he minted quantum on the Ethereum blockchain. So... Then they said that the original had been burned or destroyed when the registration lapsed. So he also preserved the on-chain data that was once held on Namecoin to the Ethereum blockchain. So then, just to give you the full picture, <laughs> so this is kind of where it gets split a little bit on the issue. I do have to just pause for one second. Yes. The it was burned on Namecoin is verifiable. Yes. So that's, that's strange. And let, let's see, I don't know how Namecoin works, but yeah, let me. It, it should be on any other blockchain. Everything is verifiable. So th you can't hide. You can't hide anything. Like you can track every single thing that's being done on blockchain. It. Don't look. This is not it. I don't know where we left off, but we just did a little. We just looked it up. <laughs> a little research to try to understand how Namecoin works. And it's based on Bitcoin, but they reference it like it's a database, a name value pair, which then... So what is that? I don't know if that means that they store the data separately and that's why you need to renew or if it's truly on the blockchain because the data should be on the blockchain, which means whoever, whoever holds that record would be the owner of the nft but also it wasn't an nft at the time like that wasn't maybe he may have coined the term or they may have coined the term nft non-fungible token they may have at that time i don't remember for sure but what we consider an nft now that wasn't yet it it wasn't standardized right so it becomes really confusing like, yeah. so you should be able to see who owns it. That should be verifiable, but it's possible if Namecoin isn't quite as, if it doesn't operate in quite the same way that we expect tokens to operate, So then it's just all up in the air. What I was able to kind of figure out. Because mm -hmm, I do have one more question about is it Is that too. Namecoin functions by assigning a token, a name that's associated with a public key or a string of numbers that assigns ownership of the NFT. Whereas with the Ethereum blockchain, you have the smart contract and then the actual like NFT, which shows 
ownership of it because then you have the whole log essentially of anyone who's ever owned it yeah so i guess the question is different i think we have a different question okay so we're asking legally like they're suing because they own it but i think the question is is sotheby's selling the original mint or is it they're sell or is it that they're selling the digital file that was the first digital file ever created as an nft because if you're looking at it as that so this these are the artists who created it they now are taking their code putting it on ethereum which is now a new nft it's a new token it's brand new <laughs> I, you smile. Oh, you no, I, I actually have uh all of this written down which Do is you? really cool i feel proud of myself good yeah so like is it because the NFT is a record, especially especially with most NFTs, an image or a video or code most of the time isn't actually on the blockchain. Most NFTs are stored on a web server. So what'll happen is if that web server goes, not 100%, but a lot of them, if that web server is ever not paid for, all these images are gone, mm -hmm. which is something that isn't talked about as much so you would you would own the reference to it well, and that's kind of what happened to namecoin then because he didn't re-register which is odd to me yes but it, that see it's just that's confusing because it's a little different like i don't yeah. know how namecoin it feels like namecoin is sort of saying we're we're storing your data on a database you must renew it for us to keep it is sort of how it sounds but then it's blockchain so it's public so i don't really know yeah what that means for for namecoin so this is very weird <laughs> which is mostly why i wanted to have you here because i was like i just don't understand this at all uh so there are like three different interpretations that are kind of centering around this case specifically as mm -hmm. to what the hell the nft actually is so one is that the nft is the asset in question so that is like the token the other or another one states that when it's moved from one blockchain to another, so in this case, Namecoin to Ethereum, that that's creating a whole new NFT on a whole new blockchain. The judge did have a ruling, as I said, and they went with the second definition, arguing that freeholdings failed to make a convincing argument as to why they were entitled to quantum as it existed on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, which could be proved by their pre-registered receipt, which represents a wholly different NFT. So TLDR, the judge was just like, no, you freeholdings, the company, you don't own this. The Kevin McCoy died, guy did because it was a new NFT on a new blockchain. So it's exactly basically what you said. Yeah, well, and also that was a case against... Also, I'm so sorry if you don't care about NFTs at all, well, because no, this is probably a CIOG. <laughs> um, there was also a case against Board Ape Yacht Club, mm -hmm. because... Many. <laughs> but the one specifically where a guy minted all of the Board Apes and then sold them. And the argument was that an NFT can't be duplicated, because an actual token cannot be duplicated. Like, that string of characters that essentially string of characters but like that reference to that token there is no way to duplicate it we talked about that on this podcast but then you can just attach any image to it so the argument was that he wasn't duplicating and selling the bored apes he was selling new tokens that were connected to images that looked, that, that looked the same i don't know how that one turned out i don't remember yeah but um, i don't remember either yeah it's all just like ai generated art it's all so murky because there's no it's, we haven't it's decided this is how it is yeah and and we haven't agreed upon what we're making up is the actual this is fact and we all agree with it i'm actually kind of shocked that it was dismissed because i thought the judge would actually rule in favor of the company and be like well yeah like you have ownership but they also it's hard they because don't it's then, a totally different they're like two nfts and it's hard because then you're saying the artist you're almost saying the artist was stolen from and you have to rep you have to give the like he wasn't stolen from but you're almost because he never sold it he mm -hmm. didn't sell it to this company so you're almost saying this company found a way to acquire this piece of art therefore they're entitled to all the money that would come from it right so it's a weird 
well, thing. Yeah, it's and it's not and, theft. It's, it's yeah. definitely not theft, but it's a a strange Well, yeah, it's conundrum. to prevent squatters, I know. I, I, I'm guessing. Because then if you said it's like a domain, then every 222 days, then it would be... So it said it was a number of blocks. Okay. So it's just how their system works. Okay. So it's not even based on days. It's based on how many transactions happen. So oh, in theory, weird. if there were so a... So that's why it's about... Okay, and if, that makes in sense. In theory, if there were a... If Namecoin became the chain that was used for everything you probably could never renew fast enough. Oh my God. Because like, Fuck that. yeah, it just, it doesn't scale. It's not, that that's why like Ethereum's completely new smart contracts and all that. ETH. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, uh, also check out my NFT projects. <laughs> yeah. The Spoopies and the Dowers. She will link them down below. If you I remember. remember. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> okay. So. And also just for clarity, Ethereum has NFTs. Solana has NFTs. Tezos has NFTs, and I believe Cardano can have NFTs. Cardano is not common for it, but those are the three major ones. Ethereum, Solano, Solana, and Tezos. And people have done things with Bitcoin where they call it, uh, I wish I could remember the term right now, but recently they did something to put like crypto punks and things on Bitcoin, but it's really like what you call an NFT is generally on one of those three chains. Yes. Just for clarity. Thank you. I think I just spit. Yes, you did, but that's fine. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for everything. You are welcome. All right, in-house band. We're on our last last story. I'm really glad I asked you to be on here for that last part because I was so confused. I couldn't figure out how Namecoin functioned. I was like, I've never seen anything like this. And I, I'm so not versed well in NFTs and crypto. You're way well, well versed. Well, yeah. And I mean, that was the thing too, is though that duo said, since this exists and this is a record with data, we can store data on there. So that means we could store anything, including digital art. So mm -hmm. yeah, so it set the stage for what, later became CryptoPunks, later became NFTs as we know them now. Yes. Okay, so we are leaving Cryptoland, and we are headed to gay old Perry in the 1880s. <laughs> so an art historian named James Hall, a professor at Southampton University, and who was a former art critic for The Guardian, states that he has a new theory that Van Gogh's painting, The Starry Night, you have seen it many a time, I'm sure, but here it is just for your information. That the Starry Night may have actually been influenced by the Eiffel Tower. Hmm. So, my dear Jeffrey, that's what it looks like. So that would be the Eiffel Tower. It's plausible. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> let's just get into it. <laughs> so let me just say that for some reason, the sky in Paris is magical, and I don't understand why it's so. It seems like it's always magical. So there's a. Let me just yeah spit some facts to you. <laughs> However, I believe you. I ain't never been to Paris. <laughs> spit those facts. Okay. So the Eiffel Tower was constructed. Just for some background, just so we're all on the same page, the Eiffel Tower was constructed from 1887 to 1889 with the Starry Night being completed in 1889, I think like June 1889. Uh, and the Eiffel Tower was finished like May 1889. Uh, and it debuted for the Exposition Universelle, or like essentially just the World's Fair. There were a fuck ton of World's Fairs from like 1850 to 1910, as you are very well aware of. He has heard me talk at nausea. Do you know when the last one was? Oh God, it it was like 2016 or 18 or something like that. It's, I don't know exactly when I'm more versed in the, the beginnings of the World's Fair, but they happen like every year, basically. The exposition opened in May, 1889. And Hall, the guy who's positing this whole theory, argues that Van Gogh, who started this series of paintings in June, 1889, may have actually been influenced by the light show that accompanied the Eiffel Tower. Hmm. So there was a whole late night show of pyrotechnics, electric light, and explosions that Hall says are, quote, repeated in the pyrotechnical music of the stars, sky, and clouds in the starry night. I like that little, uh, it just sounded beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and he continued, quote, 
For Van Gogh, the cypress tree is a natural art alternative to the Eiffel Tower, the centerpiece of the exhibition. Starry Night is a rural and cosmic counterpart to the light show that marked the opening of the exhibition, end quote. So why does he think this? Because <laughs> it's like, okay, Van Gogh was in France at that time. He was in Paris at that time. But that's kind of like the only connection. It's interesting, though, because I, I, when I first saw this, I was like, bullshit. Like, I don't fucking believe that. But then I was like, no, like, hear it out. Like, don't be so just judgmental and negative like some of you assholes are on TikTok. But I digress. <laughs> um, I could not really find a great reasoning for this, just to be fully honest, because I want to approach this with a super open mind. But a few, there were a few different things that were laid out in this article also, I should point out, this is a teaser for the actual article that's coming out in April. So uh, this is a just... teaser article? So people are writing about this article coming out in April before it's actually out because... Wait, is it coming out in a journal? Is that what... Yes. Okay. It's coming out in a journal. It's coming out in the Burlington Magazine. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually very intrigued, but this is how you generate enthusiasm and interest in your article because nobody reads academic articles except for me and like two other people on this planet. Mm -hmm. So a few different reasons. I, I held up three, but just a few different reasons as to why Hall thinks that Van Gogh was... Uh, influenced by the Eiffel Tower. Uh, one of them includes that Van Gogh was obsessed with ancient Egypt. The Eiffel Tower was marketed when it debuted as even more impressive than the pyramids. So that's one. Another is that in 1886, when Van Gogh arrived in Paris, a competition to build the monument had just launched and was won by Gustave Eiffel, hence Eiffel Tower, and that its plans and preparation were constantly in the news. So it could just be, if you're consistently hearing about it, it's just supplanted in your subconscious or implanted rather uh the final reasoning given by hall and again this is very brief and very like surface level so i'm hoping in the article he goes way more in depth but the final one was that by the time van gogh had left paris in february 1888 because he went like to the countryside uh construction of the eiffel tower had risen above the skyline so basically <laughs> It kind of just felt like a whole lot of nothing in the article. I'm still curious to hear this because I don't want to discredit it at all because it could actually be like, oh, wow, no, that like totally makes sense. Um, but I think basically what he's suggesting is that Van Gogh got so caught up in all of the excitement about not only like the exposition, but also the tower being constructed that he just became obsessed with it possibly. Like nowhere in his journals or his letters does it seem that he's like obsessed with it? I don't know. I haven't read the letters in a very long time and I don't remember the Eiffel Tower popping up that much. Like I said, I'm not I'm not poo-pooing this theory, but I just thought it was a very interesting story because uh, if it is real, then that could be really cool. What do you think looking at the Starry Night? Because I, I kind of see it, mm -hmm. but it's also, it feels like such a stretch. Like it feels like it was just supposed to be there something. there is the hill. Like, what is the... What? Like, <laughs> Montmartre. How do you say it? Montmartre. That. But so there is, like, it's plausible. Um, I think more than... Well, is, so this is of a village. Yeah, but it's plausible that if it was based on it, that this is his reimagining... Like well, yeah, and that's why they're saying, like, this is all... like yeah, this like is fireworks and things. Yeah, and mm -hmm. obviously, for a long time, it's been attributed to Van Gogh's varied mental states and, mm. like, sort of psychosis, mm -hmm. where he could see various different things moving that typically don't move. Um, so, so yeah. like, I would say it's plausible, but I think more than anything, if, not if, well, no, if if this generates as much interest as it seemingly has, there are going to be a lot of theories posited by everyone who writes about art. Yes. That's what I like. I think this is just opening the door uh -huh. for everyone to say, no, 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 this is this is definitely this. I know it's this. That's kind of what I was thinking as well. Like, I think it's a fascinating idea mm -hmm. because 
to my knowledge, nobody has ever really connected the two. Yeah, and so. question everything. I think that's mm-hmm. a good just general framework is to question things. I totally agree. Like, I think it's just very fascinating and to not immediately just discredit this person and just be like, no, like you're a dingus and just be like, well, no, like let's hear it out and let's think it out. And then we can decide after they present all the facts. Cause I think so many people, especially nowadays are so quick to be like, nope, wrong. And then it's like, well, hear them out it could actually be really interesting and at least you have something to talk about then later with your friends or whatever and be like this fucking idiot uh anyway so thank you for listening this was a much longer episode that i meant so i apologize but uh thank you very much for listening again like i said at the beginning of the episode i truly appreciate it um any support that you have whether it's liking subscribing sharing uh on patreon also if you participate in that thank you so much and uh, thank you to my best friend co-host, Jeff Sarris, or I guess guest host. <laughs> thank you for being on this episode. I appreciate of all of your input. It was very helpful. And uh, I'm Amara Andrew. I'm Jeff Sarris. Never stop creating. We did it, sugar tits. Boom. <laughs> Yoink. Badonkey.